Hi, everyone. Okay, this is the Hurricane Labs podcast for Splunk, the third edition. We haven't been around for a while, and I've decided I'm not going to be hosting this anymore. So here we go. Um, we're going to try to not make it super boring and not hash out all the technical details of all of the features. Some are, you know, a little more fun to talk about. Others are not. They're just, you know, you can find them. Maybe we'll write some blog posts about them. So anyway, we're kind of going to be talking about some of the admin stuff and also the security-based stuff. So I'm Kelsey, the marketing person and uh, ex-host. <laughs> I'm uh, Tom Kupchak, and I occasionally tell people to do things with Splunk. I'm Steve McMaster, and I occasionally tell people to do things with security. Uh, I'm Tim Baldwin, and they tell me to do things with Splunk and security. All right, it looks like we're going to talk a little bit about your guys' presentation. Uh, congratulations, I suppose. Uh, t- Tim and Tom got to talk at Conf, which is pretty awesome. It was my first time, this is Tim, it's my first time talking at a uh, uh, any conference of any size, and Tom is the uh, experienced guy who's done this uh, many, many times before. That so, being said, I hadn't ever spoke at a user conference of that scale before. Most of the ones I've done are security, so it was still a new experience. And it was my first time professionally doing a group talk with someone. And Tim was an awesome person to work with for that. Can you tell us a little yeah, bit about uh, just highlights We of were that? talking about how you monitor Splunk, not how you use Splunk to monitor things and not how you use Splunk to alert you when stuff is broken, but how do you know when Splunk itself is broken? Splunk can't tell you that it's broken if it's broken. So we had uh, many suggestions on kind of how we monitor our Splunk, our customer Splunk environments and some of the best practices surrounding that. Uh, I think a majority of our talk, or the biggest takeaway from our talk, is the three things that go into good monitoring that's time uh, relevant. So your alerts should reduce the false positives and reduce the false negatives be timely, means you get the alert in time to do something about it, but not too soon so that you forget about it before it, before it has a problem. And it has to be actionable. There has to be something for you to do. You don't want to get an alert that your indexers are using CPU because, well, that's what it does. The best example that I wanted to use in the presentation, but we totally overlooked it, was an alert for not paying your electric bill, being the lights shut off and your power goes away. That would not be a very timely alert because it comes way too late. That's right. Or relevant, because you may not get the alert if your power's out. That's right. Your Wi-Fi is <laughs> probably down at that point. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So is there a specific environment that is just bad, bad monitoring So the, uh, the whole talk came out of kind of our, our, our experience trying to monitor customer systems. I mean, we don't have unlimited resources. We don't have 500 people sitting in a room just watching alerts. You know, we're, we're actively doing something. So we wanted to make sure that our alerting was good and will help our customers not have outages. We want to be as proactive as possible so that we can fix problems before we have to go to the customer and say, oops, I'm sorry, your stuff was broken for three days and we didn't know about it or, you know, stuff like that. So all of the things from our talk came from specific customer issues that we had. So like the, the, is there something to do? Uh, you know, we mentioned CPU and memory alerts a lot. That's because we used to alert on CPU and memory issues. And every single time it came up, we would ignore it. Or we would ignore it for several hours. 
we would ignore it until it's been a problem for a day or two, and then we'd forget about it. And so if, we, if we're ignoring it, it we, we should not get that alert at all. Uh, the other example that we, we talk about all the time is the when it's 2 a.m. and your pager goes off and says that something is a problem. If you're just acknowledging the alert and putting your pager down and going back to sleep, I don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night for something stupid. If I'm just going to go back to sleep anyway, I shouldn't even get the alert. And really, all of our monitoring that we do for customers has been things that we've learned. So we will see, hey, we're doing this and there's a better way to do it, or we're missing this sort of thing now. How do we address that? So we've refined our monitoring process over the past several years as we work more with Splunk. And our talk highlighted a lot of those findings. You know, as Tom said, we're always looking for continuous improvement. So we, we definitely made sure to talk about what are the next things that we're looking at? What are the things that, that you know, we're not happy with right now that we want to be doing better in or we want to be doing more of? And uh, the biggest thing that we want to do in the future is alerting active response so that when an alert uh, comes in, we can have the monitoring system actively do something to try to resolve that problem before involving a flesh and blood human engineer. Machines are uh, smarter than us. Uh, they're faster than us. Uh, they don't get tired. They don't get. They don't get tired. <laughs> they don't get pissed off when you wake them up in the middle of the night. So, if we have procedures that every single time this particular alert triggers, we do this well-defined thing step by step. Why don't we just automate that? Uh, so that's kind of what we're looking at doing in the future for that. Uh, the other thing that we talked about is our broken hosts app that we released on Splunkbase. It uses metadata to figure out when Splunk stops receiving data and it allows you to alert on that. It so allows, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, hmm. it's really neat. And that's something, again, that, that came from probably a good year and a half of trying to solve a single problem that we see across multiple customers where they're looking for data, the data is not in Splunk because something isn't working correctly. So how do we monitor that? How do we use our tools in such a way that we know when something that was coming into Splunk is no longer coming into Splunk? And this becomes more and more important as customers are using Splunk as more of a security alerting platform. Right. As Splunk becomes more important to your organization, more of a mission-critical tool. More ubiquitous is the word you're looking ubiquitous. for. Ubiquitous. Oh, there you go. That's a great word. I love that word. Go smooth talking <laughs> right there. As Splunk becomes the go-to tool, it's more important that the data is there to support it. Without data in Splunk, you can't get the answers out of it for the questions you're asking. So that's available on Splunk Base. Definitely check out the video when it gets released. I think the slides should be available by now on the Splunk Conf website. Oh, also go ahead and uh, download the Broken Host app and uh, any problems or questions you have, email Tim directly because he's the one who wrote it. I am the one who wrote it. And just side note, we can put all this in the show notes. So... Well, let's dive into some of the, the admin, Splunk admin improvements. So one of the things that we're really excited about from Splunk is uh, the release of their App Inspect tool. This is great for any Splunk app developer and really any administrator that's doing anything in Splunk Cloud. If you are a developer, you really want to get your Splunk, your app Splunk certified so that it makes it easier for your customers to get it installed in their cloud environments 
and it raises the level of confidence that your app is built in a way that's going to be uh, good for their environment. If you are a, an administrator with a Splunk Cloud environment, any app that you request Splunk Cloud to install in your environment will be sent through App Inspect, and if it fails, they will push back on, on, on that. So having that tool available to you to run your apps through before you request Splunk Cloud to, uh, to do that or before you request Splunk App Certification will allow you to make those changes before going through the whole process of you know, them, the back and forth between you and Splunk support. And we definitely recommend that anyone who is a Splunk app developer utilize that tool and leverage it, get your app certified, and it'll definitely help with the adoption. And really, if you have a commercial product that has a Splunk uh, app or should have a Splunk app, it's going to help you sell your product as well. Another thing about uh, App Inspect, even if you're not an app developer with a major commercial product, even if you're not using Splunk Cloud, um, a lot of the stuff that App Inspect checks is just general best application practices. So even if you're, you know, installing an app that you built in-house just for your custom, own custom applications, if you're, um, you know, just putting together uh, an app that's going to collect data from, from one of your systems, whatever that may be, um, you know, running App Inspect on it is going to tell you if you did something silly. It's not going to pick up everything, obviously, um, and in particular, if you have to write any, you know, custom code to go out and talk to an API. It's not going to be able to look at that necessarily, but it's going to be able to tell you, hey, you made this common mistake in your config file and you should do it this way. It's going to tell you, hey, you know, you should have had an app.conf that gives details about your app and you didn't, but it's still visible and things like that that, you know, maybe they're not going to keep your app from working. They're not even necessarily going to impact performance, but they're just general best practices. So, you know, just even if it's something as simple as six months down the road, you're looking at it going, why did I write this app? I don't know what this app is for. Or, you know, somebody else is looking at it because you got promoted because you did such a great job with Splunk. Somebody else is looking at it and goes, well, I don't know what this is supposed to do or why did he do it this way? It it just makes sure that you keep a, a standard level of quality to all of the apps that you're using, even if they're not published. Absolutely. Let's look at some of the things that are proving uh advantageous for faster return on investment? Uh, yeah, some of the things that came out of the Splunk 6.5 announcement, um, which is available for download already, got us really uh, excited about some return on investment improvements. One of the things that they did was cluster rebalancing. So if you have four, four indexer cluster members that have a terabyte of data on them each, and you want to add a new indexer to help your system run faster searches, when the new indexer comes in, all of that data that's on the existing indexers does not automatically replicate to the new indexer. So you have four indexers with a terabyte, and then you have one indexer that's only got a couple of gigs on it because it's new. They introduced an easy way to do cluster rebalancing so that that data gets spread across all of those indexers and gets you that return on investment. Do you know if that'll uh, matter depending on your search and replication factors at all? It should not. It will take the existing data and it will um, make your search and rep factor complete across all of the peers that exist. So that, that should not be a problem. The other thing that they introduced was Hadoop data roll, which means that when you roll data from warm to cold, for, for example, you can roll data to a Hadoop cluster. Uh, to HDFS instead of, you know, some 
XFS partition or some other storage data. Some NFS system that you've got left over from some project in the past. Right. Um, so this will help you, you know, gain those dollars improvements of having Hadoop and be able to, uh, you know, to use that. It's particularly relevant if you already have a, uh, a sizable Hadoop data lake and you want to, uh, you know, extend your, your Splunk retention without having to add a bunch of SAN capacity or even if it's just NFS, being able to take advantage of that data inside of whatever you may be doing in Hadoop also. Previously, you know, Hunk was a, a paid add-on to let you search that data that's in Hadoop from inside of Splunk, and now you get to, you know, the older data um, as a free feature becomes accessible inside of Hadoop, but still accessible by Splunk. Right. And Hunk is no longer a separate standalone application. It's now a premium paid feature within Splunk. So if you want to run your entire Splunk environment on Hadoop, you can do that faster and cheaper. Uh, and you can migrate from your existing Splunk environment into Hunk without having to completely rebuild your environment. So still on the topic of saving money, uh, Splunk introduced some significant licensing changes, just giving you more options around you know, how you want to scope out and size your Splunk uh, environment. How do you want to pay for it? How do you want to track it? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, Tim. So they they did two major things. One is they re, in, they removed metered enforcement, which basically means that in the old way, Splunk would stop searching after five license overages. Uh, they removed that, so you can go over your license as many times as you want, and you can still search your data. Something tells me that they had a lot of spending. We're spending a lot of support hours on generating reset keys, and that's where that comes from. Really, the oh, thing probably. that they brought up in the keynote is a lot of times when your Splunk license is exceeded, it's when you need it most. So let's just say you have a flood of traffic due to attack or something like that. Oh, sure. Be more realistic about it. Yeah, sorry. So the, you know, the other thing that Laces is going to help is, uh, so say you have you're an organization and you want to get to a terabyte of license, right? But you're just starting out. You have no data in Splunk. You're going to grow into a terabyte. You don't have to buy a terabyte license up front. You can buy a smaller license and not have to worry about that. And then you can increase your license later after you're already past that. And really, the option that they were talking about at the keynote was the unlimited license. Unlimited. Your turn. <laughs> unlimited. There you go. <laughs> Which also probably costs an unlimited number of dollars. Uh, yeah, it can, it's, it's, it can be yours for five easy payments of everything. Unlimited dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably more expensive than the, the standard license. And the, the way that they build it, it sounds like you know, you tell Splunk how much you're using, and it's probably like your your uh, your data plan on your cell phone. If you go over whatever you were paying for before, you just pay more. But Splunk that. doesn't slow down like it does on your cell phone for your data. Well, that's true. They don't. Uh, the, the other really cool thing that they did with licensing uh, is they pledged $100 million over the next 10 years to provide Splunk licensing and training to educational and nonprofit institutions through their Splunk for Good program. That's cool. We like people who do good things. Absolutely. Um, I'm the assistant director of a, a nonprofit event called Night of Hope. Uh, it's an Akron, Ohio-based monthly event. We have uh, 22 different areas. We partner with the Akron Canton Food Bank. We provide groceries. We provide a hot meal, free haircuts, clothing. We connect uh, guests with government assistant programs. We help them fill out the paperwork and make it make sure it gets to the uh, appropriate 
organization in order to, to get them the benefits that, that are necessary. And so one of the things that we're doing with Splunk is providing a better guest experience and improving our services through data analytics. So we're taking a look at which of our areas are being used most often and making sure that we can get the size of rooms available for those areas, finding out what areas are not being utilized as much and trying to figure out if those are areas that we need to no longer provide or if those are areas that we need to move to a better location, um, things like that. And this program is really going to help us be able to provide better experience for our guests. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, Tim, is there a website where people can get more information about your cool nonprofit? Yes, if you go to ccacron.org and search for Night of Hope, or you can email the Hope Center at ccacron.org. And it will also be featured in the show notes. So, so moving on, uh, it looks like management is getting a little easier. Yeah, they're doing a lot of uh, interesting things with the captain election. You can now blacklist a search head cluster node from ever being the captain. So you can use this for if you have two different sites, a production and a DR site. If you want to put one of your search head cluster members at the DR site, you can put it there. And now you can say, I don't want my DR site to ever be the captain unless it's the only member left, in which case the captain's irrelevant. So you have that ability. It seems like they're moving more admin tools into the interface, so you have less back and forth between the CLI and the, the Splunk web. They added a DMC health check, which is really cool. You go to the uh, distributed management console and you click a button and it automatically will check your entire Splunk distributed environment for best practices. It checks your license to see if it's uh, close to being expired. It checks your indexers to make sure that they're talking to your search heads properly, all that stuff. Tim's very excited about I'm that. Very excited about that. <laughs> I ran that on my Splunk environment at home and saw that it was kind of jacked up. And so there's a lot of things for me to fix. And I was kind of excited to see that built into Splunk. We uh, at Hurricane Labs do manual health checks quite often. And this is going to completely blow what we were doing manually out of the water, make it a lot faster to uh, return time on those health checks. We get that question a lot, like, you know, how is how is my Splunk environment? And, you know, you know, I implemented it when I was doing 50 gigs a day and now I'm at 150 gigs a day. And is it still standing up to that, especially uh, around budget time? You know, do I need to look at growing my infrastructure next year? And that's an easy way for somebody to just go in and take a look at it themselves without having to, you know, reach out to us or, you know, if, if it's somebody who's managing their own Splunk, just being able to click that right there and get instant feedback from Splunk on Splunk's own best practices. That's a uh, really significant thing in terms of easing the management burden of Splunk. So speaking about their best practices, there was a, a talk at .conf about basically not doing intermediate forwarders anymore, sending data directly from your universal forwarders into the indexers. There's a very interesting discussion where, you know, some of it makes sense that if you have two, two intermediate forwarders sending to, you know, 10 indexers, that you're going to reduce the amount of load that's spread across those indexers. You know, I wanted to kind of talk about that because I know that there is some some controversy surrounding that internally here at Hurricane Labs because we typically do intermediate forwarders at, at, at our customers. Uh, so moving away from that model is something that's um, that, that's been a topic of discussion. I think from uh, from the discussions we've had about it, um, there's definitely 
performance benefits to having the universal forwarder sending directly to indexers. And I don't think I don't think we've had a lot of disagreement on that front internally. Um, but where we where we kind of see the trade-off, and you know, it's something that I I've I've seen a lot of Splunk trying to improve this, just management in general. Again, um, is there there are apps that need to be installed on an indexer that when you're using intermediate forwarders, you don't have to put those on the indexer because the intermediate forwarder is doing that work. And so what you are able to do is push those apps to your intermediate forwarders and not have to take your indexers down. But since the advent of indexer clustering and more and more customers who have uh, redundant indexer clusters, that's becoming less of an issue. And especially um, a lot of Splunk's put a lot of improvements into not requiring full restarts for certain app installations. So if you're if you're doing it correctly and only pushing the the relevant configuration files to the indexers and not the entire app, then you can definitely achieve the the management flexibility that we get from intermediate forwarders while getting the performance benefits by switching to sending everything directly to the indexer. And in six five, they've improved the they've reduced the number of times you have to restart your indexers. So you reload stuff, do more now. And you really want to reduce the number of times you restart your indexers because that'll roll your buckets from hot to warm, and you can end up with a lot more buckets, too. Well, not to mention, you lo- if you're not running clustering, you lose access to that data while it's being restarted. Exactly. And also, uh, depending on the situation and how long it takes your indexer to restart, you could end up triggering a, uh, a replication event where that indexer's offline and its buckets need to be either replicated or promoted to searchable on another indexer. So definitely, you know, there's there's caveats to it. Um, if you're if you're not a, a you know a, a super advanced Splunk admin, you know, you may think, oh, this I need to have this app on my indexer says the installation instructions, and end up putting a full application onto your indexers, and the next thing you know, all of the relevant saved searches from the uh, the Microsoft Exchange app are running on all of your indexers, not because the search had scheduled or pushed a search to the indexer, but because the indexer actually scheduled it itself. So it definitely opens up the avenue for, you know, more mistakes to be made by doing that. Um, the intermediate forwarder, it doesn't have any data on it, so scheduling searches, while, you know, it's it's not necessary and the search might actually run, it's not going to impact performance like an indexer where that search is going to start pulling data. Well, the other downside there is if you put the app on your indexer and not your heavy forwarder, and there's any index time things that it does, event breaking, time stamping, time zone things, those aren't going to get applied because it's already been baked at your uh, heavy forwarder. That's And that's exactly the, uh, the, the case that Splunk is making that you you should be doing all of that stuff at the indexer level. And I know that uh, you mentioned one of the other things they suggested is you should use a universal forwarder on all of those things instead of an intermediate forwarder. So I think before we get into that, there there are a couple of instances where we do want to have intermediate forwarders. That, that it, I think it still makes sense. Like, if you're doing Splunk Cloud, I don't think you can get away with not doing intermediate forwarders so that you don't have to open up those ports to your entire environment and have your your endpoints sending directly to Splunk Cloud. But what you can do with uh, those forwarders is increase your parallelization settings to have more pipelines available. You can and also help with performance. You can also set them to not do any of the index type stuff. So make it more of a lightweight forwarder where it is receiving the data and pushing it to Splunk Cloud. But 
it is only serving the purpose of channeling that traffic so that you're not opening a million ports. You can also use it in those cases to uh, for bandwidth control. You know, if you've got 200 universal forwarders that are each maxed out at one megasecond, that's 200 megs a second together amongst all of them. And you know, if if something happens and you start flooding events, you could very easily DOS yourself and take down your own internet connection. Whereas if you funnel it through an intermediate forwarder of some kind, you can throttle that back and say, yeah, all of the universal forwarders can send to the intermediate forwarder at a total of 200 megs a second, but the intermediate forwarder is still only able to send out to Splunk at 10 megs a second. So this is one area where I, I quite vehemently disagree with Splunk's recommendation. Splunk recommends that if you, if you are going to do intermediate forwarders to make them universal forwarders or lightweight forwarders. And I think that you introduce more problems doing that than you solve. Because you can offload some of that, and especially for Splunk Cloud, where I can do some of my own event breaking, my own time stamping, apply my own time zone stuff to the events before I get to Splunk Cloud, and I don't have to wait for Splunk Cloud for two weeks to install some app. I can just install on my heavy forwarder and, and, and be done. So I think there are there's there's benefits to doing it at the heavy forwarder. I think uh, I think Splunk Cloud is definitely a, a I, want, I don't want to say edge case, but it's a scenario where I think it's a lot a lot more of a valid argument for an intermediate forwarder. I think I struggle if you if you have indexers on site and you're running your own on-premise Splunk. I struggle to see any instance other than possibly you know you have something in the DMZ and you need to poke a hole in the firewall and not poke it for everything. I, I struggle to see any instance on-premise where you should use any sort of heavy forwarder. Again, the, the, the throttling and the uh, firewall issues aside, but in those cases, I'd still go back to you should use a, a lightweight forwarder or a universal forwarder to do that and not cook the data at that point. In, in any case, you should, you should pick one place to be where you're cooking the data. And so if you're using Splunk Cloud and you choose your intermediate forwarders to be that place, that's fine. And if you're doing it on-premise and you choose the indexers, that's fine. But if you do it on-premise and choose the indexers, you should make sure that you're not deploying a full-on heavy forwarder that's cooking the data anywhere because now that's where you start getting into the scenarios of your messing up deployments and pushing apps to the wrong places and not getting your time settings or your index time extractions or any of that stuff in the right place. So I think it comes back to you should decide what's best for your own environment. And for us, that means trying to figure out, you know, what the, what the best all around thing for our customers is. And it may vary on premise versus cloud, but every Splunk admin should look at their own environment and figure out where, where does it make sense for me to do this? And where is the, where am I getting the best management benefit out of it? And this is something we're doing ongoing discussions and reviews with customers, both new and existing to determine are we doing it the right way or if there's something we can do differently to improve. So on the security side of things, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of new stuff coming out from the conference as well. Um, in particular, there's two major security improvements in Splunk itself. First one is uh, there's support for additional SAML providers. In previous versions, Splunk came out with, with SAML login support, supporting things like ping identity and, uh, most importantly, ADFS. And since then, uh, they've now added support for CA SiteMinder, OneLogin, and Optimal. Um, so if you use any of those as your SAML provider, um, exciting news for you. Additionally, Splunk added support for multi-factor authentication. So previously inside of Splunk, the only authentication method it really supported was um, you know just a regular old password. 
Um, if you happen to have something super fancy that let you do two-factor via LDAP, you know, you could you could do it that way. But uh, what they've done now is integrated into Splunk itself, you can uh, enable Duo Security two-factor, which will work alongside of local accounts as well as LDAP accounts. So if you have LDAP support, you know, use Active Directory for your user directory, you can enable the Duo support and get two-factor, first factor being your AD password and your second factor being Duo. So that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, it's nice to see Splunk moving with the rest of the industry and supporting really good security standards for authentication. So uh, aside from, from securing Splunk itself, Splunk previously uh, released a thing called the Machine Learning Toolkit. Um, it started out as just kind of somebody's hobby project inside of Splunk. They ended up releasing it as an app on Splunk base. Um, developed it out a little bit, and it's now integrated into Splunk uh, with the 6.5 release that they came out with. Are we pretty excited about that? We are very excited about it. Um, we were we we actually started building some cool security analysis stuff on top of the machine learning toolkit just in time, apparently, for it to be integrated. Um, we're just getting ready to start rolling it out to the first couple customers, and we're just gonna you know sit and wait until we upgrade them to 6.5 and uh, roll it out. The machine learning toolkit being a first-class feature has a lot of benefits. Uh, most importantly, being that it's not, you know, it's 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 mainstream supported. So, in particular, for people who use Splunk Cloud, uh, you don't have to worry about the machine learning toolkit being this add-on thing that they've got to go through and verify and make sure it's okay. Uh, you know, it's just a built-in feature in 6.5, which also means that it's it's much more integrated into the rest of the search pipeline. And you know, all around, it's it's just a it. It's a main focus of Splunks now. It's not an afterthought. And hopefully we start to see them develop some stuff on it as well. Um, I'd like to see them down the road start building some of their ES correlation searches using it. I wouldn't be surprised, and I don't have any inside information or anything, um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them kind of start to replace the extreme search functionality that's in ES with the machine learning toolkit. Um, the, the the benefits that we've seen to using the toolkit over what's built into ES um, is primarily that you just get more control over the, the the science, the math, whatever whatever you want to use to refer to it that's looking at your data. With Extreme Search, you know it's it's really nice for users because you don't have to understand all of the fancy algorithms underneath it. But it, it's very limiting in terms of baselining how long how long is it looking at your data. Uh, it doesn't really take into account any sort of seasonal patterns. So if you have you know backups that run every night, uh, Extreme Search can't really take that into account. Um, but if you build that out yourself with the machine learning toolkit, um, then you get total control over that. Plus, there's a lot more a lot more algorithms available that you can you know build out your your model. I guess is the right word train that outside of Splunk, bring that train data back in and start applying actual, you know, AI machine learning really fancy stuff. And so we have a we have a whole whole project internally built around uh, the toolkit. I'm really excited to start seeing that uh, rolled out as we get customers upgraded to 6.5. So does machine learning help with automation? I know we're still kind of facing the challenge of the security and just across IT, the talent gap. So is, is this part of helping with automation overall? Uh, the big thing that you're going to get from machine learning is that you don't need 
you don't need as many people trying to figure out what do we need to look for. The machine learning is going to take care of that for you. You still need an analyst who can look, who can tell the the algorithm, hey, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing, um, and you know, sort of like sort of like on Pandora, where you thumbs up or thumbs down a song and it starts to learn your tastes. Um, very similar thing, uh, and it, it, actually, you see this inside of um, Splunk's UBA product also where you can tell the algorithm, hey, this this was a bad thing, mark it as such and go learn from it. Hey, you know, this thing you thought was bad is actually, it's actually okay, so. But we still very definitely need that human element in there. Yeah, you definitely still need a human element. Um, in fact, I think this opens avenues for some people in the data science world who may not have actually gotten too hands-on with Splunk just because of its its limited data science algorithm set. Um, it's going to bring a whole new group of people and a whole new group of talent into uh, the Splunk world. And it's really, really exciting to see what's going to come out of that, um, both in terms of third-party stuff for Splunk and also what they do main mainline um, with official support. Awesome. So we're definitely looking forward to moving that forward and uh, seeing it be quite advantageous to our customers. So let's talk a little bit about Splunk ES 4.5. What do you... Uh, what are you noticing about that? What's what's going on with that? So looking through ES 4.5, there were three major things that really stood out to me. Um, the first one is uh, Splunk's Adaptive Response Initiative. Uh, so what that is, it's basically Splunk is trying to turn, Splunk the company is trying to turn Splunk the product into the nerve center of your your security program. And so previously, you know, you could run actions in response to a search. So you could set up a search that looked for certain bad traffic, certain bad logs, whatever, and go trigger a response off of that. So maybe you were opening a ticket in your internal ticketing system, maybe you were blocking something in your firewall, whatever that was. Um, what adaptive response does is it actually extends that into um, the incident review functionality in ES. So when an analyst is looking at an event and investigating it, if they determine something requires action, they can trigger that manually. Um, and that opens up a lot of doors where, you know, maybe you couldn't automate something before because your, uh, your accuracy was too low, um, business concern was too high that you were going to, uh, impact something production. And so, so now they're, you know, they're adding that human element that we just talked about back into it where, uh, an analyst can look at it and say, yep, this thing is definitely bad. Go trigger a firewall drop. Or, yep, this system's definitely infected. Go reach out to the antivirus and scan it. And Splunk put together a, a pretty sizable list of partners um, for the initial round of adaptive response, which I won't try to list off right now, but you can you can definitely pick that up from their, their press release and all of that around it. But a lot of security vendors buying into the ES environment as a as a nerve center for, for your security. Um, and I only expect that to continue growing as more vendors realize the the reach that Splunk has inside of security um, and and scramble to to be involved in that. The the second second big feature, not actually a new feature, it's just new to ES, um, is the glass tables visualization. Uh, Splunk actually came out with this last year at .conf when they released their uh, ITSI um, paid app. And what glass tables is, it, it allows you to upload an image to a Splunk dashboard and lay out your visuals, your graphs, your metrics, whatever, on top of that image. Um, so in, in the ITSY world, uh, the way they, they used that was to, you could upload a diagram of 
This is how my web app firewall talks to my web server, talks to my app server, talks to my database. And you could then drag and drop the actual numeric metrics for response time or number of errors or whatever on top of those pieces in the, the diagram. It just kind of gives a little bit more visualization to somebody who's not a, a Splunk person. Um, you can look at it very easily and say, oh, this number is related to the database. This number is related to the web server. And so we've actually already had conversations with customers about how they could use this from a, uh, from a security perspective. For example, uh, one of our customers has, you know, perimeter firewalls, uh, say in their data centers all around the world. And what they, what they're talking about doing is having, actually integrating the machine learning toolkit also and having a baseline of this is the number of firewall events or this is the number of IPS events on those perimeter firewalls and being able to visualize that, you know, whether it's with a, a network diagram or um, one of our customers actually even suggested just a, a globe, a map that has, you know, we've got a data center here and here and here and show the number of firewall drops and you can easily visualize something like a DDoS or a vulnerability scan coming at you. So again, it's certainly nice to be able to visualize those things. Yeah, definitely. And it goes goes back to, you know, the, the Splunk theme of trying to tell a story with your data. Um, the more visual they can get, the more people they're going to reach. There's a lot of a lot of management types, a lot of C-level people who, you know, a, a table on a Splunk dashboard is cool, but not nearly as cool as a big globe with, you know, flashy numbers. <laughs> so yeah, glass tables is pretty exciting. And I'm, I'm particularly interested, again, in, in seeing how we can tie the machine learning toolkit into that to do statistical baselining stuff and represent that in a way where it's going to be meaningful to to non-technical people. And then the last is, you know, it's it's very near and dear to my heart actually and it's it's a very, you know, detail oriented in the in the sand sort of thing, but uh the the drill downs in enterprise security for the correlation searches have historically been terrible. And I've done multiple professional services engagements where I do, you know, the ES setup, we get a bunch of data in there, we start tuning correlation searches, and I sit down with the customer at the end to do a knowledge transfer, and they go, okay, great, so so if I want to look into this alert, I click right here where it says, uh, view contributing events, and the search page opens, and it just sits there, and sits there, and sits there, and of course, the first thought is, well, why isn't Splunk working? Just by the way that uh, the data model command, which is what's used in there, functions, uh, it's very slow, very, very, very slow. And the more you have in Splunk and the more types of data you have, the slower it gets. I haven't seen specifically what they've done um, in terms of, you know, how how much it's improved. But based on the notes that they provided on what they did, um, I'm expecting this to actually go from totally unusable before to exactly what it's supposed to be. And again, that's uh, it's it's really important as they try to push enterprise security as the nerve center of your security program that you can you can click and drill down the way the way you need to to investigate things um, so I'm particularly interested in that and uh, once we get es 4.5 installed I'm definitely gonna you know go there first and see how that looks and uh, <laughs> exciting news is that uh, earlier in the podcast we told you that uh, es 4.5 should be out by the end of the month but uh, as it turns out, Splunk got it out the door a little early, and oh, uh, nice. it is available now for anybody who already has an ES subscription. So go to, to Splunk Base and download it, or uh, if you have Splunk Cloud, open a ticket and beg them and plead with them to install it for you. And if you're one of our customers, then uh, you know 
once we test it and make sure that uh, it's all going to work right out of the box, uh, we'll get tickets open with you for uh, scheduling that. Perfect. So from Conf, it sounds like Tim has a kind of a cool story he wants to share. <laughs> yeah. On uh, so on Tuesday, uh, they had the search party that they have every year at .conf, and this year since we were at Walt Disney World, um, after the uh, Hollywood Studios Park closed, they opened it up just for the .conf attendees. And it was like, it was really weird. It was like this post-apocalyptic world where the only people that survived were the nerds and they all went to Disney World. I, there were no lines at any of the rides. I have never seen so many people with dress shirts at an amusement park. Exactly. <laughs> it was, it was kind of weird. Um, all right. But in a cool way. Nerds in dress shirts? Is that what you said? Yeah. Like, like they they look like they came right from a corporate conference and went to an amusement park. Because that, that's, that's what they did. Yeah, they, that's what they did. They, they weren't all running around in shirts that said, finding your faults, just like mom? No, it, that was, was like half of them. It, it was oh, half, okay. half Splunk t-shirts and half, you know, buttoned down. Half people who hadn't yet purchased their Splunk t-shirts. Half people who use Splunk and half people who pay for Splunk. Got it. Exactly. Okay. There exactly. you go. Yeah. But yeah, it was a awesome experience and I don't think I'm ever going to want to go to amusement park any other way. I want the whole park to myself with just a bunch of nerds and no lines. Yes. It was kind of cool. That's awesome. I'm glad you guys got to be there. Had fun. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. Well, just a quick uh, note for me. The end of October, we have our big information security summit. So we'll be there. I'll be there. Some of our terrible salespeople will be there. Just kidding. Sorry. Sorry, sales. Um, no, and it's also, okay. <laughs> and Tom and I will be presenting on uh, the different ways that uh, auditors can interpret compliance requirements and how you can account for that in your own uh, security programs to make sure that you're not scrambling every year to adjust for the new auditor that you got. We promise it's not going to be as boring as it sounds on the surface. It, it probably will be. Okay. Yeah, it might be. But we're going to try really, really hard. But we're gonna we're gonna give out stress balls, so it's okay. Yes. You just gave away the secret sauce to that presentation. Ooh, th that's but... what's going to get people to go there. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. There's going to be free stuff there. No, 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 no. Oh. Like information and stuff. It's not information. What you get to do with the stress balls is the secret sauce. No comment. C All right. Come and, come and find out. <laughs> All right. Anyway, yep. We'll see you there. So thanks for listening in, and uh, we'll chat more with you next time. Bye. Go tribe. Bye.